As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Soccer Show as we take a dip into our virtual mailbag and pull out some of your listener questions. Listener questions on a Monday, whatever next I ask you. Today we'll be discussing the shrouded mystery of European salary and transfer data, we'll be assigning USMNT players superhero alter egos, and we'll be making some crazy soccer predictions. My name's Ryan Bailey, joining me today is a man who must now tolerate living just one state over from LAFC's Giorgio Chiellini, Joe <laughs> Larry, I'm sorry. You know, Ryan, weirdly, I'm not having as much trouble with that reality as you would be if you lived in Arizona. I don't know what the difference is between you and I, and certainly it's not Euro 2020 based, is it? I mean, I, I, so far I'm doing okay, but uh, but thanks for asking. Joe, Joe, just wait until you get horse collared while walking yeah. down the street, then you'll change your opinion. Yeah. That's it. I mean, that would do it, Graham. I would no longer be terribly pleased with living that close to Chiellini, but so far, so good. Just picture it, Joe. You, you're on your vacation. Or you, you, you drive out to Sedona. You're climbing the mountain. And just as you're about to reach the top, you feel that yank on the back of your collar and you tumble to the floor. And that would Keelini. That would be extremely frustrating. I'm not like the biggest hiker to begin with, although I do quite enjoy Sedona and Northern Arizona is beautiful. Good mm. good Arizona reference as far as, as well, Ryan. That's great work. But especially being so close to the end of a hike or at least to the end of the hardest part of the hike, I would not be pleased with being yanked back down a few feet or a few hundred feet, depending on how forcefully Chiellini decided to pull my collar. <laughs> Indeed. Well, as we have at LFC, uh, signing Giorgio Chiellini, worst person in the world. Also joining us is a man currently being saved from SWS soccer withdrawal syndrome, I should say. <laughs> SWS, new, new phrase for us. He's being saved from it by relatively meaningless Nations League games on both sides of the Atlantic. <laughs> is that right, Graham Ruthven? I mean, yeah, let's just say they're meaningless because Scotland are doing terribly in the Nations League so far. 
really, really humiliating stuff. Not entirely sure what's happened because we'd been on an eight-game unbeaten run before our World Cup playoff game against Ukraine. And yeah, it's just, uh, it's all become a bit of a mess. So yes, Ryan Bailey, I'm very much on board with the narrative that these games are, are indeed meaning- meaningless. Yeah, it seems like these ones more than ever in this long and storied history of the Nations League have been a bit pointless, Graham. Things that all the players are a bit tired and don't really want to be playing right now. Is that fair to say? This seems to have been the longest international break in history. This feels longer than the Euros last summer. This, I think everyone's played four or five games, which is ridiculous at the end of a season. But I guess that's what happens when you move the World Cup to the winter. By the way, the, the intercontinental playoff between Australia and Peru is being played today, as we record, mm. in Qatar. That's the same Qatar that apparently was too hot to play the World Cup in the summer. And strange that, isn't it? Hmm. Interesting. Very interesting, Graham. I saw um, some footage of Peru fans uh, causing quite the ruckus in a Qatari hotel lobby as well. Uh, it looks like they were creating a wonderful atmosphere, which Qatar will be no doubt famous for come November. <laughs> I'm sure of it. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure the authorities will be nice and, nice and accommodating and forgiven in, yes. in, in Qatar with that Indeed. sort of stuff. Anyway. Indeed. Yeah, we're going to get to the list of questions, but a couple of bits, uh, a couple of news stories I want to cover, some MLS stuff. But first, Graham, we have to get to something I caught on Twitter um, earlier today. It's not new, but it's from the Footy Scran Twitter, uh, which we you know Uh-oh. that we love on TSS. Bovril Ice Lolly at Wembley. Oh, yes. Bovril Ice Lolly. Uh, to be uh, to be clear, listener, Bovril is, I think it's British in origin, but uh, if you go on its Wikipedia page, it is described as a thick and salty meat extract paste, similar to a yeast extra- extract developed in the 1870s. Ladies and gents, they've made that into an icicle, an ice pop, an ice lolly, uh, mm. and they are expecting people to put this into their bodies, Graham. Why would you not want that on a hot day? Because it's a That's... meat popsicle, Graham. <laughs> it's meat, Graham. <laughs> That's it's why. Like, and it's meat extract. It's like retired circus animal meat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> meat, good. Ice lolly, good. Combine the two, good, in my oh, opinion. You had me You had me with meat, good, and you had me with, what was it, lolly, good? Either way, popsicle, whatever, good. Um, you, you lost me there with that last bit, Graham. Uh, I, Ryan, what... I can't. I don't even know what to look from here. I am just back from America where it seems like you blur the lines between sweet and savoury rather a lot. So uh, let's not try and pretend that England and the UK are doing anything uh, sacrilegious by combining meat and, and uh, popsicles. We're not right, pretending, Graham. Graham. We're knowing. We're, we're Salted living caramel. Salted caramel, sweet and, and, and savoury. Yeah, I'll, I'll accept that. Bovril ice lolly. No, no. Britain, this is why you can't have nice things. <laughs> Oh, well, that's fine. I'll just have all the Bovril ice lollies if no good. one else wants them. That actually does work out pretty well for everybody. Yeah, I'm, I'm good with that. I'm good with that. Okay, that's that one ticked off. Uh, Graham, you've been writing in the Guardian newspaper about Gargos Slonina. Excuse me. Tell me more. Yeah, I've decided he's going to start at the World Cup this winter, <laughs> and uh, there's nothing that Greg Barhotter can do about it. So there you go. No, obviously, there's a lot of chat around him at the moment. It seems like Chelsea and Real Madrid are in a bit of a tug of war to sign him this summer, which is pretty good for an 18-year-old MLS goalkeeper to have that sort of attention in him at this at this point of his career. A lot of excitement around him. I do think this, this year's World Cup is going to come too early for him. But for a country that has produced a lot of world-class goalkeepers, it's kind of the position that the US has been most prolific with in terms of, of, of producing those sort of players. He, is, he seems to be the next one along the conveyor belt. And so that it was a piece just looking at what he's good at. I, I kind of looked at how there's this debate around Matt Turner and... Um, 
Zach Steffen about what they, they kind of they exist on different sides of the ideological coin and one's a shot stopper and one is good with the feet and Slonina is maybe a combination of the two so maybe he's ideal for the US in the future Joe you going Gaga for Gaga? Not yet, but I agree he is a really talented player. I wrote a a somewhat similar piece for The Athletic a while back about just he's a talented kid, right? He's an extremely talented young goalkeeper. I don't think he's ready for prime time yet, and any move that he makes will almost certainly be followed by a loan back to Chicago, which I think is perfect for him. He'll probably play the rest of this season and maybe even all of next season, at least half of next season in MLS. He can get game time. He can get minutes. He can improve his distribution. He can improve his shot stopping. I agree with Graham. I think the seeds are there for him to become really good at both of those things, especially the shot stopping with his athleticism. But I don't think he's quite ready yet, which makes sense. He's a he's a teenager, right? So a very talented player and certainly one for the future. Uh, one other piece of news coming out this Monday as we record, Joseph. Ronnie Daler heading to yeah. Belgium, leaving New York City FC. This this one caught me off guard, Ryan. And, and Graham, maybe because I don't think that Belgium is a step up from MLS. And I know I spend far too much time deep in the weeds in Major League Soccer. But I don't even think that's an American-centric take at this point. There are teams in Belgium who I think would thrive in MLS. But I don't think league for league... Belgium is dramatically better in terms of the exposure you get or in terms of the tests that you can you can get as a manager to improve yourself. Neither one is a final destination for a coach. Maybe that's the best way to put it. But either way, Ronnie Dyla is going to Standard Liège in Belgium, where I, th- I think he'll do well. It's difficult for me to tell right now if NYCFC's success or how much NYCFC's success is influenced by Ronnie Dyla. Because you look at the talent they have, they're the deepest squad in MLS, hands down. And they probably were last season. They win MLS Cup, which is an incredible accomplishment. But I wonder what other coaches could have done that job too. So we'll see what's next for NYCFC. We'll see who they can snag and, and who ends up doing that job. It's going to be Nick Cushing, who's coaching that team on an interim basis. But we'll see how much of uh, how much damage Ronnie Dyla's exit does to NYCFC. And we'll see how he does in Belgium. Joe, how disappointed are you that you're not going to have a front row seat again this <laughs> November for Ronnie Dyla's, uh, what shall we call it, strip show? <laughs> yeah, forget it. I'm not going to MLS Cup anymore. If Ronnie Dyla's not going to be taking off his clothes, I, I don't want to be there. Ah. It's that simple. Standard Liège fans, look forward to that de-pantsing ceremony whenever you are uh, <laughs> victorious. Maybe they become premium Liège if they get that kind of treatment on the field. Who knows? <laughs> boom, boom. Anyway, let's move on to listener questions. Let's start on... Oh, by the way, I should mention, there's a fourth person usually on this podcast. Mr. Taylor Rockwell is not with us today. Uh, he doesn't love you enough, listener. That's what he told me to tell you. Um, he doesn't care for you. I'm just joking. He's, he's traveling. Taylor's been in New York, Joe. Isn't that fun? Ah, he's a big man. Big New York man. I don't have anything else to say. <laughs> He's, the truth is, let's let's face it. The truth is, he has still got a sore head from uh, a Cooligan's wedding at the weekend, doesn't yeah. it? That's 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 the truth. That's what what's happened. What what I love about that, Joe, is I I, I threw you um, some you know USMNT goalkeeper prospects and Ronnie Daly news, and you could go for a couple of minutes on that. When I mentioned your friend Taylor going to New York, it was hey, he's a New York man. Oh yes, New York Taylor. That's good. <laughs> Never change, boys. Never change. (laughs) All right. Listener questions. Let's get to it from another Taylor. Taylor J. Thank you for getting in touch, Taylor. The MLS Players Union releases salary data officially. Is there an equivalent in Europe? And subsequently, how confident are we in transfer spends and salaries for players? What's the history of salary and transfer data? Graham, I come to you first on this one. Hmm. So the... The short answer, I think, and please correct me if I'm wrong on this, the short answer is is no. There isn't an equivalent of in Europe because MLS is a centralised organisation. They have that power over their clubs to publish salaries and it's that has always been a, a central principle 
of the league is that transparency. And personally, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of it. I think it allows everyone to know where they stand. It provides fans with transpar- transparency and where their money is being spent. And it probably forces the clubs to be that little bit smarter and prudent with how they spend their money because everyone is going to see they're working at the end of the day. You can still find some information on salaries in uh, in Europe and in some leagues. So if a club is listed on the stock exchange, like Manchester United, for example, they have to provide a breakdown of their finances, usually at the end of the financial year, so that you can see what they're spending on their payroll, for example. But you don't get a breakdown within that payroll and that payroll might also include general staff members not just players so it's it's difficult to kind of work out officially what for instance Cristiano Ronaldo gets paid from Manchester United fan-owned clubs like Barcelona that's another example they uh, any club that has a sort of democratic process as well with a president being elected they are sometimes required to keep members or socios in Barcelona's case they they have to keep them up to date with certain certain things like salary spend so for instance Laporta has been very open about what Barcelona are spending on wages since he's come in he said we need to cut this from the wage bill and so on but again that individual player by player breakdown isn't there it's a broad look at the picture and there are journalists and out there uh, outlets sorry out there that do provide reliable information on salaries. I think the absolute best is, is Swiss Ramble on Twitter. That account tweets out all sorts of salary information on how much players are earning, but also a lot of insight into general financial condition of clubs. I would suggest he's he's well worth a follow on Twitter. But beyond that, you're relying on what's been reported in newspapers and places like The Athletic. Because as I say, unlike in MLS, clubs in England aren't required to reveal that sort of information. There's not that centralised structure. They, they, some of them are publicly listed, others are private, and they're, it's all, they're all different circumstances. I found yeah. the same things, Graham. It really depends as far as the figures that you see floating around on the internet. The, the truth behind them just depends on how much you trust who's reporting them, right? It's, it's that simple. You don't get a mandated, detailed list of individual player salaries or transfer fees. Now, some clubs will provide more information into those things, especially transfers than others. But really, it, it depends on where you're finding that information and, and how much you trust the person that's reporting it. Deloitte uh, also releases wages and net transfer fees and revenues. You kind of talked about this, Graham, with Manchester United. They release a big report at the end of each year uh, about uh, about how these clubs are spending money and, and some of the financial details, but a lot of it is in a more macro level than a micro individual player kind of level. I didn't find any other major league, major soccer league in the world that does what MLS does, and a lot of that comes down to the structure that you that you already mentioned, Graham. Yeah, absolutely right. And I think the 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 the, uh, the thing to emphasize here about Europe is they don't have to uh, disclose this data. Ninety uh, percent of the time, or maybe a, the majority of the time, the fee is disclosed by both parties mm. because they believe like the correct market value is being reached. They believe it's mutually beneficial to have that figure out there. All their objectives are reached in disclosing that. Although quite I think often, Benfica did that with Darwin Nunes just yesterday, actually. I think they confirmed that the transfer right. fee is 75 million euros plus add-ons. So we've, we've actually seen that more, more and more recently. I think clubs actually being very transparent about transfer fees, but not salaries, as you say, right? Yeah, exactly so. Yeah, and so quite often now you see it's literally in the press release, they'll confirm it in, in the, the figure in there, which you didn't always used to see back in the day. And in fact, even as recently as a few years ago, typically you'd have the salary figures and even the transfer figure 
coming as leaks through back channels through journalists, which is why some newspapers might have slightly various uh, <laughs> massage figures or different figures to one another on certain transfers. But there is an ex- there is the undisclosed transfer fee as well, isn't there, Graham? Which is um, which can be done for several reasons and actually. As I say, even a few years ago, most transfers would have been undisclosed even if their transfer figure was uh, was published in the media. And that can be done for a few reasons. That can be if the selling club doesn't want to disclose that they're about to um, you know, have, have that much money come their way if, if a player is being sold for $100 million and that club wants to go and buy some players. They don't want their purchasing power to be affected. You might have seen that when um, Neymar was sold to PSG and then Barcelona had some rather high transfer fees when they had to buy players to replace him. So that they want that often it's to avoid that kind of thing. It can be to avoid media scrutiny as well. Um, Philippe Coutinho to Villa, Aston Villa, for example, that was an undisclosed fee he went for, although the the figures were roughly reported in the press. But that was kind of to avoid a backlash if the fee was deemed too high from one party or too low from another. So Mm. it is quite interesting. Um, I can't imagine if if you were a buying club why you would ever want the transfer fee to be disclosed. I can understand if you're a selling club and you want to be like, like, look how much we've just sold our player for. We've just set a club record or a league record or a world record. But I can't really see the positive if you're a buying club of having that number. Well, the negative is more for the selling club, isn't it, Graham? Because you're saying, we now have all this money in our bank. Come, come and overinflate your next transfer yeah, but we th- buy. There is also the, the kind of showing off aspect of I'm just thinking of Scottish clubs like Celtic and Rangers would quite like to show off if they had like a 20 or 30 million pound player to kind of be, kind of be like, we've just set the new record. But I understand what you're saying. Maybe maybe yeah. there is also reasons for selling clubs to disclose that information. Definitely. There are positives and negatives. Joe, what do you think about MLS releasing salary data? Do you think it's a good thing? Do you think there's maybe an advantage if MLS clubs were to keep that kind of information secret, if, if it were in their power to do so? I love that MLS teams release this. It is... One of the most fun days or or week, if you expand it a little broader, of the MLS season, you get to dive in. I'm just a nerd, so I I think it's fun to go in and and read and, and look at how teams are spending money and the teams that are good at it, the teams that are bad at it. I do think, Ryan, there is something to be said for MLS teams being... Being being more careful with how they distribute information, and this is probably not the best example. The salaries are not the best example, but just generally, this stuck out to me when Taylor had David Goss on the show, and, and Goss talked about how when an MLS team goes down to South America and they're trying to negotiate a deal, there is automatically a price increase from that team, from from the selling team in South America, or from really wherever. Because they know MLS teams have the money. I mean, you can look at the salary data and say, they're paying Shakiri how much? Okay, yeah, we're going to charge you an extra million or two. They paid, you know, how many millions of dollars for Brenner coming from Brazil? Okay, yeah, we're, we're going to tack on an extra couple of, of million onto that fee. So I do think MLS is in somewhat of a difficult position as it tries to grow in terms of finding value players. I think it's really possible to do that still, don't get me wrong. And I think MLS teams just aren't very good at it by and large. But I don't know, Ryan, I think there's advantages and disadvantages. There's advantages to being um, just clear and straightforward about the money you're spending and just laying it out on the table. There's also advantages, like you say, and like, like Graham, you've been talking about, to maybe keeping that information a little closer to the chest. So either way, I don't think we're going to see any of that change anytime soon. But I also think there's a very clear reason why MLS teams in particular don't always disclose transfer fees because they are fighting for whatever remaining leverage, whatever sliver of leverage they have over some of these teams they're buying players from. Mm, yeah, they hate free market capitalism. Yeah, that's what <laughs> I was getting from that, Joe. Very good, very good. Okay. Uh, Taylor, thank you very much for that question. We'll be back with plenty more after these short commercial messages. 
This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Total Soccer Show, welcome back. We are taking your listener questions, including this one from Mr. Derek Light, uh, who asks, why are English managers so unsuccessful in the modern game? An English manager has never won the Premier League. Uh, 91-92 was the last English manager to win. That was Hal Wilkinson when Leeds won the last version of the First Division before the Premier League started. Uh, Joe, any thoughts on this? Please don't be rude. So I'm, I will not be rude. Um, I, I'm do. very curious to bounce these ideas off of YouTube because I think you both have a better perspective. But there, there are some things that I have felt as a very much third-party neutral observer when it comes to English coaches. So the first prong of this to me is it seems like at least with some managers in England, some English managers, and some of the soccer culture in England, it seems to me that some of that is based on proper football, right? I mean, there is certainly tactical evolution taking place in England. Of course there is. I think there are some really talented and progressive coaches, Graham Potter and Brighton, who we talked about in some detail a couple of weeks ago, I think is is maybe chief among those more progressive coaches. But it seems to me that in a lot of the punditry, which are, are individuals who have likely come out of managing or come, come out of playing in the last couple of decades, you get a lot of just very basic, bland, Sim- oversimplified analysis, which I think sort of speaks to this idea that in England we're just going to play long and we're not going to think too much about this whole tactics thing. And I, that's not true. It's a very generalized statement. But I think that it applies in certain pockets of English soccer culture. So that's the first prong. The second piece of this is education and, and coaching education and accessible and affordable education. So as of 2013, and this has almost certainly changed since then, but this was the most recent info I could find, and it still applies. As of 2013, it cost 582 pounds to get, shoot, that figure's not right at all. I think it cost 58, my notes are totally incorrect. It cost 5,820 pounds, I believe, to get a UEFA A license in England. Compare that five grand figure with $620 in Germany and $1,500 in Spain, and right away you're getting a look at the number of coaches that are going to be impacted financially. So that those figures and the amount that it cost, or at least that it did cost in the last decade, to get your top-level coaching licenses in England relative to other countries has limited the number of top-tier coaches. A UEFA study from 2013 found that England had just 1,395 coaches holding UEFA A and Pro qualification badges compared to France's 3,308, Germany's 6,934, and Spain's 15,423. There there were, and I'm guessing this is still true, so fewer coaches in England, English coaches with top-level badges, that you're naturally just getting fewer and fewer top-level English managers who are up to the same standards as, as managers from other countries. So between maybe some cultural influences and the difficulties with education in England specifically, 
I think you're looking at the reasons why there aren't a ton of really top-level elite English managers in the game right now. Graham, Ryan, do those ideas kind of square with your experience? Absolutely. So I I agree with a lot of what you say, Joe, but here's the anomaly in this discussion. I don't have an answer for this, so I'm just raising it as an anomaly. And this is going to sound like I'm uh, throwing shade England in Ryan's way, but I, I, don't, I think this is a, an accurate representation. Scottish managers have been very successful historically and also recently as well. So if you go through some of the, the best managers of all time in English football, you're looking at Ferguson, a Scot, Busby, a Scot, Daglish, a Scot, Shankly, a Scot. There was a time in August 2011, so relatively recently, when seven of the 20 managers in the Premier League were Scottish. So Sir Alex Ferguson, Paul Lambert, Alex McLeish, David Moyes, Doug Leish, Steve uh, Steve Keane, and Owen Coyle, who I know he represented Ireland, but was born in Scotland. So, and, and I would say Scotland has a very similar... Uh, if not exactly the same, football culture to England. A lot of the things you described there, Joe, about kind of antiquated views, we have the same sort of thing in, in, in punditry as well. So I don't really understand why there's there has been... If you think of great English football managers, obviously there are some. Bobby Robson, I would mention. Brian Clough is a great English you know, football manager. But there's not really been that many, as many as you would expect anyway, given the stature of the club and given what English teams have achieved in Europe and everything like that. So it's, it's, a, it's a strange one for me. I think recently England's coaches have got a lot better. I would say over the last 10 years, there has been a modernisation. I think the the FA, they had that overhaul about 10 years ago where they, they also built St. James, uh, St George's Park, sorry. And by the way, that's not just a training ground for the England national team. It's, it's a place where coaches go to learn the trade. And now you actually have, I, I read a story last week that the German FA have visited St. George's Park to learn some tips of the trade from the English FA regarding coaching, which is oh, an interesting role reversal of uh, years gone by. Yeah, that's basically what the FA did to the German FA in the early 2000s. Um, so I think that says a lot for how English coaching has changed, but we've yet to see that kind of emerge at the top level and what I would say about the Premier League is that the the Premier League just has such a financial advantage over other leagues that the foreign managers that go there are the best in the world if you look now you've got Pep, Klopp, Tuchel, Conte they're all in the league at the moment so the English managers are getting compared against the absolute best in the world where maybe an Italian manager in Serie A, Serie A, and this is not me saying that there's not good managers in other countries, of course there is, but that's maybe not the level of competition that they're facing in, in their own league. So I do actually expect a few English managers, given that at grassroots level, I think the coaching has improved a lot in the last 10 years, and I think that will start to reflect in some of the managers that are reaching the Premier League level. I think Eddie Howe, for example, is doing a good job at Newcastle and, and stands a good chance of kind of breaking into the top four with Newcastle over the next few years with their money and resources. So I think there will, there is going to be a change coming in the next few years, but it definitely is a bit of anomaly that there hasn't been that many great English managers. Yeah, it is fascinating. I mean, I looked at the 92 English league clubs, and by my count, there are 48 English managers currently, uh, only five in the Premier League at the moment. So I'd suggest there's no shortage of opportunity, but perhaps a lack of quality because the majority of those English managers are in the lower divisions. And I also found that um, that data that, Joe, you mentioned quite fascinating from 2013 about how much more expensive it is to um, to take the coaching badges in the UK. And obviously, it seems to be subsidised elsewhere. So the FA not helping itself in that respect. And I think when you think of English managers, and, and, and this is the broad strokes you were talking about, Joe, you think of your Sean Dietches and your Big Sams. You don't think of technically-minded 
modern thinking managers your right. pips and your guardiolas do you so there's a there's a cultural issue here there's obviously a financial issue here and most importantly as graham race we have to blame scotland for taking all the jobs <laughs> yeah that was the takeaway yes yeah. i also yeah. had that same takeaway yeah. about scotland <laughs> it's funny though joe i don't know if you have much experience of a youth level coaching in the u.s but every youth club i've been to and every academy in mls i've seen there are English coaches there. So so we do get around. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I mean, all of this, the exact same goes for me. I think you definitely see the influence that a lot of those managers have in, in England's sort of broad-reaching influence. I will say I think part of that may be just academies. Maybe this is less true now, but in the past, trying to legitimize themselves by having someone who talks like the place where soccer is most famous. I mean, I, I think that's a piece of this. And I also, I also do think, to, to sort of close out my thoughts on this whole question, I do think this is going to start to change, right? I think England, with all the resources that are there, all of the money that is in the game, we will not go another 30 years of the Premier League existing. We will not go another decade, even, yeah. I would imagine, without some really famous coaches, some, some, some English coaches becoming really famous and well-regarded in the soccer world. Like I said, with someone like Graham Potter, I think we're already trending that direction, there's just going to be more and more as England sort of sorts out this issue because they will. It's just sort of a matter of time. Yeah, there's there's absolutely no way that you can have Pep Guardiola and Jurgen Klopp dominate the Premier League for so long and not have some of that influence seek into the grassroots in terms of coaching. And as I say, the FA are doing a much better job now than they were 10 years ago. So I agree with Joe. Things things will change. There's going to be there's going to be a cultural shift in English coaching or English management, I should say, in the next uh, five to 10 years, I think. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see some updated uh, data from UEFA as well. Based on that data, there were far fewer uh, qualified pro-licensed coaches in England uh, in 2013. So that will be interesting to see. A very interesting question, Derek. Thank you very much. We move on to Anthony Valdivia, who says, if Christian Pulisic is Captain America... Anthony Robinson is Jedi, and Walker Zimmerman is Thor. What fantasy or sci-fi nicknames would you give to other USMNT players, and why? I have to admit, gents, um, sci-fi, fantasy, comic book, hero stuff is my blind spot, so I don't have too many here. But, uh, Joe, you seem like a person who might like Marvel movies, maybe? I do. He's I calling like... you a nerd, Joe. <laughs> that's fine. I already <laughs> did it to myself earlier in this episode, so that's fine. I think I'm the only one of the three of us who enjoys Marvel. Graham, I think, can can pinch hit a little bit with Star Wars. We're not the most qualified to answer this question, maybe, but I do have some. So let's start with Marvel. Count Acosta is my first nominee here to be given a superhero nickname, and I, I want to nickname Count Acosta Hawkeye. So Hawkeye, Ryan, I don't know if you've seen any Marvel movies. I'm just going to explain very, very quickly. Hawkeye oh, shoots the arrows. Archery guy. Archery guy. Yes, he shoots one arrows. The Avengers one. Who, they all have really good powers and he can shoot a bow and arrow. Yeah, yeah he's the rubbish one. Yeah, he is. <laughs> but but still, he is a he has an uncanny ability to hit the target accurately. Nice. And that to me sounds like Kellen Acosta on set pieces. Not not all the time, but this is a little bit of a stretch. But still, I think back to some moments in World Cup qualifying where Kellen Acosta just put some set pieces on a dime for either Walker Zimmerman to head in or for whoever in and around the box. His service on set pieces can be an asset. So Kellen Acosta as Hawkeye is my first one. I'm moving into Star Wars now. I guess I'm stepping on Graham's turf here. Gio Reyna for me is Han Solo. They're both cocky and, and know how good they are and they're both good and also cool i think Gio Reyna and han solo is a, is a pretty good match tim ream 
not really around the U.S. men's national team much anymore, much like Yoda was not around a lot of, uh, for a lot of Star Wars in 4, 5, and 6. Old and wise. They're both old and wise. Tim Ream kind of has that very wise demeanor about him in that he seems like a Burhadler confidant on the sidelines sometimes. And, and Tim Ream is Yoda. I'm really stretching here. My, my last one, Graham, before I turn it to you, is well outside of my own personal movie knowledge. But Weston McKenney is Harry Potter. I haven't seen any of, the, any of the Harry Potter movies, but I know that Weston what? McKinney has and that he does the wand celebration. So it oh, seems so like a does. freebie for Weston McKinney to be Harry Potter Doesn't he have, in this he fantasy sci-fi. He has a tattoo, sci-fi. doesn't he? I think he has like a lightning tattoo in, in tribute to Mr. There's Potter. too many Weston McKinney facts for me to keep track of. He talks about ranch on pizza far too much for anyone's <laughs> liking. Uh, maybe there's a Harry Potter tattoo in there. Either way, he does the celebration. So he's Harry Potter on my list. So Acosta is so Hawkeye, Google- Reina is Han Solo, Reem is Yoda, and McKinney is Harry Potter. So Google does throw up Wes McKenney Harry Potter tattoo, but a quick image search does not show said tattoo. So that is... Oh, I found Boom. it, I think. Oh, no, wait, I haven't. That's oh. someone else's random tattoo. <laughs> did, did, did you go onto a, Did you go incognito mode to uh, search for that one, Graham? Uh, no, my Harry Potter fandom, I, I wear it on my sleeve. Not in the form of a tattoo, I must say, but uh, yeah, I'm, the, I'm, I'm a Potter head. Is that a term? Sure, it is now. Is what pothead, it is. yeah. A pothead, pothead yeah. <laughs> Graham, go ahead. What have you got? <laughs> so, I have. I'll start with Star Wars. So, Sergino Dest is R2D2. Just because whenever someone is in trouble, R2D2 is, is the one who has the nice. answer. He's a Swiss army knife of a droid. And Dest is a bit like that as a soccer player. So, if you need him at left back, no problem. Need him to take a shot from distance, not a problem. Need him to shut down the trash compactor in time to stop his teammates from being <laughs> crushed by the closing walls. Yeah, I reckon he could do that too. Uh, and then I'm going to skip to a completely. A different show i'm going to go to stranger things now and for me personally that's a very personal one this is the, fr- the the frame of reference for one is if a frame of reference for this one is a personal one for me luca della torre is steve harrington from stranger things because you're not sure about him at the start in fact you might think he might be a bad guy and then his character arc takes him all the way the other way and actually he's the one with a lot of solutions so <laughs> luca della torre steve harrington and then i'm going to go back to star wars because Ricardo Pepe has to be Luke Skywalker, right? The one who can lead the Jedi to glory, but there's a process before he can get there. And at the moment, Ricardo Pepe is stuck in the swamp on Dagobah. And I think it might be a while until he can make that X-Wing fighter fly. Graham, you're good at this. Holy cow, those are all really, really good. Yeah, I'm, I'm a bigger nerd than I let on. <laughs> <laughs> I think you let on the appropriate amount, Graham, frankly. Um, <laughs> I, I understood about half of that, actually, but that sounded excellent. I, I've, I've just thought of one. Um, the Spider-Man 3 movie, do you remember the one from like, it's 2007, the Sam Raimi one with, um, mm. uh, what's his name? Oh, oh what's that? Tobey Maguire, Maguire. Where he does the strut down the street when he turns evil. You know, it's like the worst movie moment ever. The best and worst moment of a film ever. Best and worst combined. I went to the premiere of that movie as well, I remember. That was a, I used to do interesting things. But um, in that movie, I believe we introduced to Venom, who is the evil Spider-Man. And if I could think of, say a USMNT player who did play for England and decided to switch over to the dark side, Joe. Can you think of who that might be? Oh, I, I mean, I can think of a few players that have English eligibility who you didn't manage to get. Erling Holland for one, <laughs> not a USMNT player. Gio Reyna for another, that one oh. stings, I'm sure. And Yunus Musa, Ryan, most importantly, played for the English youth national teams. And now with the US men's senior team, mm. that's the one you're thinking of, right? I was thinking of Musa. He can be, um, Musa can be Tommy McGuire Venom and, and um, Gio Reyna can be uh, Tom Hardy Venom. How's that? 
See, Boom. I, I actually think Yunus Musa might be Finn, John Boyega, Boyega's character from Star Wars, and that he used to be a stormtrooper, but now oh, he's part of the Rebel Alliance. That's good. He's a good guy. Either way, we've decided he's a good exactly. guy. Exactly. Now he's a good guy. He was a bad guy. England. All right. I don't like it, but the narrative is excellent, Graham, and it works very well. I will give you that one. I will give you that one indeed. All right. Thank you very much, Anthony, for that one. Uh, maybe when Taylor comes back, we'll do that one a bit more justice as well, because um, I think he'd be good at that too, wouldn't he? Because he's a giant nerd. Because he's a, the giantest nerd of the giantest nerds. Uh, thank you, Anthony. Let's move on to the next question from Forrest Lyle, who says, with the 2022 World Cup being in the middle of the club season instead of at the end, do you all think we may see better games since players will be less tired since they haven't just finished a long season. Graham, I think this is a very, very good point because mm. we were just talking at the start of the show about the Nations League right now and all the players looking a bit exhausted and not really into it. These players who haven't really had a vacation in what, like five or six years now, there's always been something on over the summer. I think we could get a really good opportunity here to see players almost hitting their full steam in November, December, Graham. Yeah, I'm. I'm not so sure about this, and I mean, and I mean that because I I don't really have an answer to this. I think we'll we'll find out when the the tournament kicks off. I understand the logic, the idea being, as you say, that players will have a free summer now, apart from those damn Nations League games that they seem to have packed the schedule with. But anyway, they will get a holiday very soon, so they're going to have that time to recharge, and then it's just a few months until the World Cup, and then by the time the World Cup comes around in November, players will be in their stride. However, if you look at the 2018 World Cup. There was pretty much a full month between the first match of the World Cup and the final weekend of the Premier League season. The Champions League final was a week after that. So three to four weeks between the end of the domestic and European season and the start of the World Cup in 2018. This year, the final Premier League fixture uh, before the World Cup will be on November 13th and the tournament kicks off on November 21st. So there'll be just one week break between the end of the, the, the break in the domestic leagues and then the start of the World Cup. So either players are going to be in their prime condition or they're going to start off well and just be absolutely knackered by the time <laughs> we get to the latter stages of the World Cup. And I'm not sure which one it's going to be, but I am interested to find out because as Forrest says, it's it's uh, yeah it's something that we might have to consider that's unusual about this World Cup is that it's coming at a different point in the in the yeah. season. Just just one week break between the end of the Premier League and the start of the tournament. At least neither England nor the USA are in action on the first day of the tournament though, right Graham? Right? 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 Is I that mean, right? Am I right. meant to feel sorry for you being in a World Cup? You're not getting any sympathy from me. I'm just going to cry over here. Sorry Graham, I didn't mean to bring that up for you. Maybe I did. <laughs> Joe, what do you think? Of course you did. <laughs> so this one, I, I'm with Graham. I could see it going either way. Weirdly, I I don't think there's going to be a dramatic increase either way. Like, like I, I don't think it'll be discernibly different in quality from Summer World Cups, regardless of, of maybe the midseason timing for a lot of the European leagues helping players have fewer minutes on their legs. I, I just don't think it's going to matter. I don't think it's going to be a visible change just because I still think, and we've talked about this a bunch over the last, you know, however long, the biggest difference between the club game and international soccer and the biggest thing that prevents international soccer from being of the same quality as club soccer is just time. It's the amount of time that players spend together training and whether the World Cup is in the summer or whether the World Cup is smack dab in the middle of the, the classic European club season Either way, those players are not getting a lot of time to train together. Yeah, in the summer, they have time, more time leading into the tournament. But 
still, I mean, it's not like the quality of play leaps off the page. We don't always watch those those World Cup games because they're the most entertaining in terms of the on-field quality and precision. We watch them because it's a big moment and it's a big tournament and because everybody else is watching them. That's just how this goes. I don't think that that paradigm changes in the in this November December kind of time frame. I don't think it's going to make really much of a visible difference. I will be curious, maybe I'm wrong, maybe there is some some sort of obvious change, but I'm skeptical about that. Do do we know when the players are going to meet up before the tournament? If league seasons are ending a week before the World Cup starts, I, I presume they're not going to be able to they're not going to be released by their clubs until that break and so Normally before a World Cup or a major tournament, teams are in camp for, I would say, at least two weeks. That's Surely that's not going to be the case this time. Or are there going to be exceptions and maybe players are getting released from clubs earlier and they're all going to join at different times? Or is it going to be like meeting your pals at the airport for a bachelor party to Vegas on, on, and just flying off to the World Cup and <laughs> playing some games? <laughs> yeah. Um, I haven't done enough uh, research to know the answer to that question, Graeme. I no, presume I, I, they would have to stay with their clubs. Certainly, the elite players would have to stay at their clubs yeah. right until the end, right? No, you would think so. I haven't seen it. I haven't seen it written anywhere. If any, if any listener has seen it, please, uh, please tweet me with that information. But yeah, that's another question about mm-hmm. this strange schedule of having a, a World Cup in the middle of a season. I think what's interesting as well, Graham, is what will happen to the second half of the season. You mentioned sort of players being knackered towards the end of the World Cup. How does the second half of the European domestic season look as well? If if, if there are teams, I mean, when England go all the way, those English players are going to be completely exhausted um, by the time, you know, January comes around as where they might have had a, a slightly long, well, they wouldn't have had a break in the Premier League, but, you know, the, the, they might not have had quite as intense a period. Actually, no, they would have done in the Premier League. I don't know what I'm talking about. My point being, Let's put it like this, Graham. There's going to how be. Are they gonna, how are they going to get all those games in? Actually, now that you mention yeah, it, yeah, that's the busiest period I know, in English football. Yeah, and I think MLS this season is doing more midweek games. I think Premier League is going to do the same thing as well. So it is going to be very, very busy indeed this season. It's going to be, uh, yeah, very, very intense time for these players. But what about those players, Graham, who don't go to the World Cup? They're getting like a pretty sweet month off at this time. And you think about of all the Premier League, there's quite a large chunk of them, for example who won't go. Mm-hmm. They're, they're going to have a lovely old time. They're going to be fresh as a daisy come come January. Yeah, they're going to enjoy Christmas Day for once because <laughs> uh, footballers famously usually have to train on Christmas Day with games being on Boxing Day. So they can sit and watch the Quin- the Queen's speech in peace. I'm not sure that's the thing they're probably looking f- most forward to, but there you go. Probably not, probably not. All right, uh, interesting stuff there. Thank you very much for the question for us. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to give some crazy, crazy predictions. Back shortly. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham, all new, Thursdays on FX, stream on Hulu. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. 
Total Soccer Show, welcome back to our listener questions. Alex's Vicky has been in touch, who says, finish the sentence, by 2030, dot, dot, dot. And we've got to finish that gap with our crazy soccer-related take for what will transpire over the next eight years. As an example, says Alex, his would be, by 2030, AFC Wrexham will be fighting for survival in the Premier League. Woof, how about that? Um, I'm going to get the ball rolling on a slightly negative note, gents. By 2030... We will have a European Super League. I believe the forces that tried to make the European Super League happen before will try again, but I think they're going to pitch it slightly better. I think it's going to be pitched more as a Champions League replacement. I think it'll be closer Mm. in the Champions League to format, so it wouldn't disturb the domestic seasons too much. But basically, I think that same organisation is going to try and usurp UEFA again and try and cut out UEFA and try and get a larger piece of the pie. What do you think, Graham? Yeah, I mean, I have gone down a similar route with my crazy take. My mind is slightly broader than that. So I've gone with by 2030, there'll be a, this is going to sound very boring, but I'll explain. There's going to be a widespread consolidation of the sport. And as I say, that sounds very boring, but I think it will fundamentally change what football looks like, not just in Europe, but around the world. So I think by 2030, the cups will be gone in English football and in most countries. I think you'll have, this is where the Super League bit comes in, Ryan, that you mentioned. I think you'll have an expanded European season. Here's maybe a slightly more surprising one. I think the Euros will be gone by 2030. And I think we'll have a bigger World Cup every two years um, that kind of, the, the, the countries that would count on the Euros every four years, I think they'll just be enveloped into a, a larger World Cup. I think you'll have some sort of Atlantic League, including clubs from Scotland and Holland and, and Belgium. I think uh, MLS and Liga Mekis will have merged, at least at an administration level, maybe not the leagues, but I think there will be more uh, working together there. They're already doing that, so another eight years from now, and I think that will continue. Uh, I know the the Gold Cup, I think, has been merged with Copa, the Copa America by 2030. So you mentioned the Super League. I think the Super League might have been the wrong vehicle, but you can't deny the drive and desire there is. Not necessarily from me, but from other soccer fans. They want to see the best play the best as often as possible. And I think that desire will change how football looks over the next 10 years. Okay, so I, I pitched European Super League and you matched my crazy and raised me... Triple crazy, Graham. Well done. You yeah, I mean, the Super League has already been proposed. I didn't think that was crazy enough. So I went, yeah, I went super crazy. All the cups as well. That's, that's only eight years away, Graham. Come on. Yeah, well, <laughs> eight to ten, let's see. 2032. Right. That extra two-year buffer is really going to do yeah, Makes all the difference. Yeah, that's yeah. right. That's right. Definitely. 2031, they'll be gone. Joe, what do you think? So I, I think a lot of what you're saying is true. I think... 2030, I know I just gave you some some crap there, Graham, about maybe the extra two years. I do think a lot of these changes will take longer than just eight years, like looking at MLS and Liga Mekis. I do think there will continue to be more of a of, a, of an intertwined relationship between those two leagues, but I think it's going to take a lot longer than just 2030. Same with some of the other European changes that you mentioned, Graham, but the underlying point you're making I think is spot on. I would be shocked if in the next decade or two decades – we don't see more consolidation from around the soccer world. I think it will be maybe the biggest storyline in soccer and one of the biggest storylines in sports in a broader sense over the next decade or, or, or 15, 20 years. So I think you guys make some really excellent points there. 
I have a few predictions here. This I had so much fun with this. I'm not usually a predictions guy, but I love this question. You love predictions, so, Joe. What are you talking yeah, about? You're right. Sorry, that's other Joe that doesn't like predictions. <laughs> this is this is the Joe that does like predictions. So my first one is only one other team besides Manchester City or Liverpool will have won the Premier League title by 2030. So only one other team besides City or Liverpool. And the reason why I think that it's twofold. First, we don't know how long Pep and Klopp are going to be around. We do know that at least one of them, and Jurgen Klopp, has signed an extension until 2026. Now, there's no guarantee he stays throughout that entire tenure, but I do think it is possible. So there's a chance, a pretty good chance, that at least one of those two managers and the teams that they've built are around in some form for the next four years, which takes a big chunk of time already off the books. The other thing here is even after those managers leave, I think the infrastructure at those clubs is so good that whoever comes in is not going to have the easiest job in the world, but they will have a big leg up over other new managers and even some of the other established clubs and managers in the Premier League. So I think only one other team besides City or Liverpool will win the Premier League title by 2030. My other uh, my other predictions here, USL will be on its way, on its way, not there, but on its way to instituting pro-rel between the USL Championship and USL League One. Maybe there'll be some further development in the lower divisions as well. I think that is... I think that's one of their biggest value propositions relative to MLS, where it will be significantly more challenging for Major League Soccer to institute promotion and relegation because of all of the different interests at play there. I think USL is closer to being able to do that, and I think it could even be a smart move for them to try and do that at some point in the next decade. And my last one is the U.S. will move into the top 10 countries in terms of players getting minutes in the top five leagues. So by that, I mean... You, you count up all the minutes of players of a certain nationality playing in England, Spain, Germany, Italy, and uh, shoot, France. That's the fifth one. So right now the U.S. has players like Pulisic and Reyna and Musa and McKenney and Dess and, and all of those guys playing. This year the U.S. was 30th in the rankings with 26,291 minutes. I think they'll break into the top 10 in the next eight or 10 years. That pretty much means they'll be up next to those five European countries and the South American Giants and the Netherlands and Belgium, which is a, a big jump to make from 30th to the top 10. But I think the way that talent development is trending in the U.S. right now makes that, if not likely, at least potentially possible by 2030. Wow. I love those, Joe. Um, I'm going to ask you on your question, about, uh, on your statement about only one other team winning the Premier League. Who going to be Joe? Who going to uh, be? I, this is I kind of left my options open here. I don't know the Newcastle. one. It's going to be Newcastle. Newcastle are on the list. Chelsea as well on the list. I think you give Manchester United five years, maybe late in the twenty twenties, <laughs> and and maybe they could be in contention. I think Newcastle and, and Chelsea right now are probably the two best bets in that regard. Okay, um, that leads slightly to one of my by twenty thirties. Um, Newcastle United will be in a Champions League final by 2030. That is my prediction. Uh, I think uh, maybe even a Premier League title contender by that point too, but logically speaking, they would be as well. I looked at what the kind of investment they're going to have over the next few years. I looked at Chelsea. They were um, taken over by Roman Abramovich in 2003, and they got to a Champions League final in less than... Well, they got to several. They got to two in less than a decade, didn't they? They got to 2008 and 2012 as well, didn't they? So um, obviously they had a bit more infrastructure in place than Newcastle did. But I think a decade uh, or eight years, as it were, is going to be just fine for Newcastle to get to the Champions League final. Right, Graham? Right, right, right. And is Eddie Howe going to be the man that takes them there? No. Or is it going to be someone else? Pep Guardiola. Wow. Okay. <laughs> that is that is a bold uh, prediction. Okay. Come find me. Can, Come and find can, me in eight years, Graham. 
Okay, I mean, I will, and I'll show you how wrong you were. <laughs> when podcasts are injected directly into our brains in eight years' time, uh, we'll be still here talking about that. I think, yeah, that that's one of mine. Um, I've got one more for you. By 2030, soccer will be the third biggest sport in the United States of America. Uh, it's already bigger than hockey by many metrics. I have a study conduct- conducted by research from Ampere Analysis from last year that revealed a, the real the revealed that 49% of US sports fans uh, claim to like watching soccer on TV ahead of 37% for ice hockey. Uh, in that same study, baseball was at 57%. So uh, I'd say that soccer is hot on the tail of baseball and it has already overtaken hockey. Uh, in 2020, Joe, 17.8 million Americans played soccer. 2.3 million played hockey. So I think that hockey is kind of in the rear view and I think it's coming for baseball. I don't think it's going to get bigger than basketball in the next eight years. But Joe, do you like my thinking? I do. I think I think soccer is well positioned to become more and more popular in the U.S. How long that will take, I don't know. How well the United States will be able to leverage the 2026 World Cup, I don't know. We're getting info on the host cities on Thursday. So that's a, a pretty big story this week as far as which cities in, in Canada and the U.S. and Mexico FIFA has selected to host games in the 2026 World Cup. But Ryan, I like your thinking. I think soccer is only going to get more popular over the coming years. Yeah, and I think that the decade, the last decade when I've lived in the States, the, the exponential growth of the sport I've seen is going to continue. More investment, more interest, more globalization as the world gets to be a smaller place as well, I think is an important factor as well. So that's how I see soccer spreading. Uh, Graham, any more from you from this one or should we, should we jog on? I was going to predict that by 2030, Stirling Albion will be European champions, but then what was quite a depressing thought was I counted up how many seasons that would take at the earliest opportunity and it was seven years the earliest opportunity for that to happen so we better get cracking on that uh, ambition we've only got one season to waste (laughs) a lot of climbing a lot of climbing there Graham all right um we've got a, a question from Jacob Court here which is aimed directly at Joseph Lowry hot dog now I have Joe's attention. I'm what is listening. happening with Sporting <laughs> KC this season? Um, and Joe, Jacob says he's asking because if he asks Peter Vermes, he might shout him into a coma. Sporting KC, Joe, rock bottom in the <laughs> West. 3-4-9 uh, record at the moment. As we know, conference semi-finalists last year. Conference winners the year before that. What's happening in whichever state Sporting KC is in? I can't remember which one it is. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's really fair. Um, I have two categories here. They are injuries and old. Those are my two categories, injuries and old. Let's start with injuries. Um, so Justin Egan wrote a piece about this for the backfield, about the designated player rule. Not for the backfield. Goodness gracious. I'm the editor of the website. I still said it wrong. For backfield.com and wrote about uh, the, the, the issues that arise and can arise with the DP rule. And SKC are sort of like the prime example in Major League Soccer right now. They lost two of their designated players to season-ending injuries. So neither Alan Polito nor Gadi Kinda have played a single minute for Sporting Kansas City this season, and they are not going to play at all this season. And SKC has not been able to use those DP spots on anyone else. So they are dealing at a talent, they are operating at a talent deficit relative to a lot of other teams in Major League Soccer. It is so, so difficult for teams to win games without nailing their DP signings. And SKC have largely nailed their DP signings. They've done that. But they can't nail their on-field performances, on-field performances, without having those DPs on the field. That's the reality right now. With the other issues in their squad, 
with uh, the other injuries they've had. Graham Zusi, Johnny Russell, some of the center backs, some of the forward depths. Those players have been out for stretches of the season with injuries too. The depth chart has been tested. And, and without some top-end talent to really carry the team while the depth chart is being tested, SKC have struggled. So that's the first part. The second part is I mentioned Graham Zusi and I mentioned Johnny Russell there. Along with Roger Espinosa and Fountas and, and a number of other players, this is an old team. Charlie Bohm had a great piece. I'd encourage folks to go read this on MLSsoccer.com out about sporting Kansas City struggles recently. He sat down and talked with Peter Vermees and, and had a lot of good insight from Vermees on this topic. One of the lines that Charlie included in that article was, according to Transfer Market, Sporting Kansas City have fielded seven of the 10 oldest starting lineups in MLS so far this season. And mobility has been an issue in key areas of the pitch. And that's true. By some of the underlying numbers, SKC are one of the worst transition teams, defending transition teams in all of Major League Soccer. They are really, really old, and they just don't have the young talent right now to supplement some of the older players on their roster. Yeah, they're getting some players who look like Cam Duke, a couple of other players they brought in with the U22 initiative, but those players haven't impressed me all that much. They just don't have the right blend of youth and experience. They're relying far too heavily on experience from players who just don't have it anymore. So I think when you're looking at a team that's bottom of the Western Conference right now, like SKC are, Injuries are a massive part. Their age is a, is a huge part in, in just needing some of these younger players to come along a little quicker, which is just not going to happen because that's not how this whole thing works. Um, just checked it, by the way. Children's Mercy Park, Joe, is firmly in Kansas. It's quite far from the state line, relatively speaking. And in the retail park outside, there is a Chick-fil-A, an Olive Garden, uh, an Applebee's, and a Longhorn Steakhouse. I could basically live in that retail I was going to say it's, it's heaven. Happy. It's heaven for you, Ryan. I'm so hungry right now as well, so all of those things are making my mouth water. Oh, there's even an IHOP, Joe. Oh, there's Panera oh, Express. Game changer. Wow. Panera. I bet it's a drive through Wonderful stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Great. The street from your dreams, Ryan. Oh, yeah. I, I really need to visit this stadium just to go to the retail park outside. I mean, is that not like every American retail park has those things? Yes. You could just yeah, go to kinda. any of them. Yes, yeah. but I want to go right. to them all, Graham. I need to see them okay. all. I need to see them all. Uh, anything to add on this, Gene, before we move on to a question aimed specifically at you? Johnny Russell scored a good free kick he against did. the Revs at the weekend. It's beautiful. So as long as the Scott is doing well, and I know he's not actually doing all that well, but anyway, he's still scoring nice goals, so that's all I really care about. Yeah, rock bottom in the West, I remind you, Graham. Anyway. Thank you very much, Jacob, for the question. Andrew McPherson says, primarily for Graham this question, and others may weigh in too, if national teams had to pull directly from their national flags, which teams would have the best kits and which flags would translate best? This one's a little curious for me, Graham, because it's my understanding that the majority of national team shirts and kits are based on national flags. There's a few exceptions, like Italy Mm -hmm. and Japan and Australia. Scotland. Scotland? Well, hang on. You've still got Navy. But it's not on our flag, though. Our flag is a completely different shade of blue. All right. I mean, it's still blue, but it's not really drawn from our flag. So, what are you thinking here? Are we we interpreting this as literally having, like, the pattern of the flag on it, or we're just going with the colours? Um... I've kind of merged the two in my answer. So I think Sweden <laughs> is always a very, is a strong look. They're, I love their kits because of the colour scheme. That obviously comes from the country's flag. They have yellow and blue. But it is, I don't think I've seen a kit from them that kind of has the, 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 the like the Swedish cross, whatever that's called on their flag. I think Finland at the Euros, they did have that, that uh, the kind of cross from their, uh, 
from the from their flag, and that was that was great. That was a great kit. I actually think the U the USA has a great flag for a football shirt, and and the Waldo kits they had a few years ago were were brilliant. I actually have that jersey, and as much as I have liked the recent USA kits, I have seen some leaked kits of the World Cup kit for this year. The USMNT kit, mm, not so keen on that one, but I like the <laughs> one they're wearing at the moment. Anyway, I wish they would go back to that colour scheme because it's a very unique look in international soccer. And I, and I think, as a general rule, if you have a look that nobody else has that is recognisable at a glance, then you're on to a winner. And some flags some flags are great for providing that and others aren't. I think the US flag is great for, for providing that. So it feels, it feels a little bit of a waste to me that they don't use those red and white uh, stripes hoops, whatever you want to call them, like they, they did for that Waldo kit a few years ago. I'd love to see that back at some point. I also love it when the Netherlands put a flash of blue on their shirt to reflect their flag because a lot of the time they don't they don't do that. I don't think the World Cup kit this year has any blue on it. It hasn't for a few years. It's just been orange. And that's great. I, I do like their, their orange kits. I've got a number of, of Dutch kits. But check out the 2008 Dutch shirt that they they wore at the at Euro 2008 that year it had the flag uh, in the detail of the collar it was it was the Dutch flag in the collar and it was one of my favorite ever ever shirts and I own that shirt and it's lovely so if you can get a flag into a shirt I am very much on board even though it kind of makes international teams look like they're from uh, pre-evolution soccer well the denim kit from 94 that had the flag basically on it didn't it Graham yeah, it did. And I, I'm sure I read a story about how that was designed because they were they were made by Adidas. It might have been in The Athletic, actually. And the designer of it kind of photocopied, photocopied or Xeroxed the, the, the stars and then like stretched them out to create that strange uh, that strange effect that was on the denim shirt. It was a good story. If if you can find it on The Athletic, I would, uh, I'd recommend it. Yeah, definitely so. Um, I, my, my notes to add are, yeah, I agree that Waldo kit, I don't think national team kits, certainly not US ones, get better than that. Although... I think the Netherlands might be my favourite national team kits. I've, I'm a sucker for the colour orange. I think it's my favourite colour. And I don't think you can get better than those bright orange kits, Graham. It's great when all the fans are wearing mm. the orange kits and it's just a sea of orange. But as I say, just a just a flash of blue somewhere in there and it just lifts it that little bit more. Okay. Joe, any thoughts on these kits before we wrap it up? So the one that comes to mind quickly for me is Canada. I think if Canada emphasized the maple leaf just a little bit more i think their jerseys would get way cooler their jerseys right now i like the color scheme the red is a really nice true red but they're boring it's if i'm remembering correctly it's almost either all red all black or all white with maybe the numbers being a slightly different color it's not an exciting look and i think if you get that accent on there i think you're looking at something better the other jerseys that i've just been that have been googling over the last couple of days that I've just learned about and, and learned that I love from different countries' flags. Barbados has some really awesome soccer jerseys uh, with sort of the, uh, or at least they could have a lot of potential for a soccer jersey with the trident that's on their flag. Yeah. It is a really cool look. Um, and then another one that stands out to me is Bhutan, who has that same bright orange that the Dutch have on their jersey, but with some really cool yellow detailing that you also see the color contrast on their flag. It's not something that I think I could get away with wearing um, with with my skin tone. Um, but man, the colors are really, really cool, and I think they would stand out on the field. So some countries doing really well with their with their flag concepts on kits. Others like Canada, I think there's room for a little bit more. I started looking at um, national couple well, nations that have something interesting, like an object on their flag, and the maple leaf is a good one, Joe. Um, I think maybe they could just put a moose 
um, insignia on the back as well. Maybe they could wear Mountie hats too. That would look fun, wouldn't it? I'm here um, for it. The only other nation that stood out to me as having something interesting on its flag is the one with a sword on it. Saudi Arabia. Not sure they should be putting the old sword on their flags at this point. However, yeah. Anywho. Yeah, moving on. Moving on swiftly. <laughs> lots of stars. Lots of countries have stars. Australia, China. Maybe put some more stars, just like the US um, of 1994. That would be wonderful. All right. Uh, thank you so much, Andrew, for the question. Thank you, everybody, for your questions. If you have one to send us, totalsoccershow.com slash questions is where you need to head. For the meantime, Graham Ruthven, thank you so much for your contribs today. Thank you, Brian. Really? Arizona Joe, thank you very much. You got it. Listener, thank you so much for listening. We'll be back on the feed very shortly, but for now, bye.